way it is from day to day. Um, I see that unlike Danny Qua yesterday, I didn't get my name on the first slide, so I'm Christopher Johnson, and uh, Lionel Rawlings is my father-in-law, his daughter, my wife, Danny, is here in the front row, so it's very nice for the Robbins family to be able to preside over these lectures every year. This is the first series of lectures we've had about France. Now that makes it rather remarkable because you'd think France being a neighboring country would be an object of great interest to the British. Well, of course it is. As I can testify, having been Paris correspondent of the Times and Financial Times longer ago than I care to remember. But what I can tell you is that there was a period of history when the British looked up to the French as the masters of economic growth. We even imitated the French plan, not very successfully, but then it ended up not very successfully in France either. But while France was catching up after the war, Britain was still growing very slowly. So we thought France must have some secret we didn't have. And then suddenly everything moved in the other direction. After Mrs. Thatcher had done a certain amount of damage, but also perhaps some benefits to the British economy, Britain started growing faster than France. And it so happens that this covered the 10 years of Tony Blair's premiership. Now I have to keep telling the French, look, we haven't really discovered the secret of growth, and you can see that's true now, because we're much worse off today in France in the recession. So we have this picture of two friendly rival countries. Uh, one decade, one is up and the other is down, and then vice versa. So I think there's a great deal that we can learn from each other, and I'm going to ask Philippe Aguillon to give us some of the lessons of growth. But I must first just tell you one story uh, about French regulation, which is always thought to be very hostile to growth, and they have plenty of it more than we do. But one area where the French were very successful was in regulating the cultivation of oysters. And if you wonder why it's so difficult to get cheap oysters in Britain, uh, then you should realize that we overfished our oysters. We didn't regulate the, uh, the growth of the oyster beds. The French have regulated oysters for many centuries, and now they're very plentiful in France. That was the subject of a famous economic journal article by the late Robert Neils of Cambridge University, and I hope he enjoyed his oysters when he went to France. I know I did. Uh, react 
to uh, the business cycle more or less has uh, an impact on long-run growth. And, and that's kind of a, uh, an issue which is uh, in fact controversial in, in, uh, among macroeconomists because what you, when you learn macro, intermediate macro or macro you, you, it's very much seen that, you, uh, uh, that the, uh, there is a decoupling between macroeconomic policy on the one hand and long-run growth the view is that if you do even to Trichet or to central bank we say when you're in the long-run growth essentially is driven by structural factors you know, product market, uh, uh, competition, whatever, labor market, uh, institutions uh, of, of various kinds, uh, investment in knowledge, uh, higher education like we saw yesterday, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and what you want to get from macroeconomic policy is essentially what you call macroeconomic stability. You don't want, uh, you know, excessive inflation because then people stop investing. And so you just look for macroeconomic stability in the way IMF, you know, has always looked at it. You see what I mean? And that's it. But beyond that, it's all structural. And, and we want to kind of take the view that these things are different. That in fact, uh, uh, it matters for long-run growth how you conduct fiscal and monetary policy over the business, uh, the business cycle. So there's a big debate, you know, on the European uh, on the policy of the ECB. Although now they start lowering interest rates, uh, finally, and uh, and and a debate on the stability and growth plan that you know uh, restricts the extent to which we can run a budget deficit in bad times. And, uh, and, and in fact, for many aspects of, growth, uh, of European policy are going against governments in Europe that want to say, you know, we may have to help sectors or we may have to do things. And that's a kind of interesting debate. You see how we can, uh, you know, uh, uh, deal with people uh, in Brussels while uh, fighting this crisis. Well, of course, you have part of the problem, but not for the whole problem, because you have at least an independent, uh, you have an independent uh, monetary policy and you're not subject to the stability and growth pact. So, for example, does it matter for long-run growth that the eurozone shows less counter-cyclical deficit than US and UK? So, this, this picture shows you the, you know, about the, you know, the variation of structural deficits on the horizontal axis and the variation in short-term interest rate on the vertical axis. So, if you want, the, 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 the horizontal is measures the, money, the budgetary policy and the, and, the, and the vertical measures the, the monetary policy. And what you see is that you have big swings in the US and the UK, you see? Uh, you, 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 you react a lot and they react a lot in the US to bad times, okay? That was done, of course, that's outdated. Uh, it doesn't include, you know, since two, one year or two years. But uh, the Eurozone, you see, barely, we barely move. You see, they would, uh, of course, that's before the big crisis, and now, of course, they realize they have to, they have to move. But you see, uh, both, the, if you look at, uh, so the, the interest rates, but also how governments react, you see, you have very little movement over the business cycle in the Eurozone. And you ask yourself, is that a big deal? This difference between this and these big swings, is that a big deal or not a big deal? Should, you, should we make anything of it which is relevant for growth? And, uh, and so what I want to argue is that, and here you can see the counter-cyclicality, the cyclicality of budgetary policy of government debt. You see that, for example, the UK has become much more uh, counter-cyclical. Uh, uh, the US over the years, the US as well. But you see, for example, the EU, uh, the, the, the EMU zone, you know, has barely become more counter-cyclical over the years. Of course, I'm excluding uh, since one year. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's a question, is that, is that a big deal or not a big deal? And uh, uh, I should keep going. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, I want to argue that uh, that's a big deal, in fact. I want to look for the relationship between cyclical macroeconomic policy, here you look at fiscal, and long-run growth. 
and therefore challenge the traditional dichotomy between short-term stabilization and long-run growth. So, so here I will argue that when you are in a world where you have credit constraint firms and sectors, uh, uh, there you see a macroeconomic volatility is harmful for growth because firms reduce productivity and enhancing investment when they express more volatile, volatile shocks. You see, when you do R&D investment, and you, you know, typically, and you, you, you know that in bad times, you will have uh, cash flow problems, and therefore investment problems, you will have to cut on your R&D. Uh, then you, you won't engage in R&D in the first place, because R&D is something that you have to, to keep going. You see what I mean? If you, if you think that at any bad time, you have to cut it, you don't engage in it in the first place, you see. And so, in fact, there is this effect that that's why the short run affects the long run. If, if, if uh, uh, firms don't have the, you know, the guarantee that somehow they'll be sustained in a certain way, in the right way, not in the wrong way, uh, uh, in, in recessions, they might not engage into long-term uh, uh, R&D or structural investments. So, uh, so the idea is that in a world like this with credit constraints, of course, if you're not credit constraints, it's no big deal because when you have low cash flow, you, can, you could always borrow up to the net present value of your profits of the, of the flow of profits, and that would be no problem. But of course, when you are credit constraints, uh, you, what you can borrow is a, pro, is a, a multiple of your cash flow. And when you are in period of low cash flow, uh, uh, that's what you... And of course, you know, people would say there is a kind of bad, a good side of recession. Otherwise, it's all Schumpeterian idea that there is a virtue of bad times. That in bad times, that's where you question yourself and do other things. But that's true. But you know, the problem is when you have credit constraints, you will have to do other things, but you can't. You see, that's the, that's the, that's the, so, so, yeah. and of course, you don't want to, you want to help firms in a way that would not prevent, you know, that would not, you know, say, because I get a lot of cash from the government, I don't need to change things. That, you don't want that. But you would like to make possible, make it life good for firms that want to innovate. So it's not that you want to help firms that would just have a quiet life in recession, in, in bad times. You would like to also to help, you would like in fact to help firms that want to do something, that they can do something. You see, that's the way you want to think of the counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So, uh, uh, the approach, and on the matter, there can be a straightforward uh, uh, approach to that, and, 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 uh, which is to say, well, how, what is what we call counter-cyclical fiscal policy? Well, uh, you look at typical you know, fiscal surplus or fiscal deficit, and that's this variable, fiscal surplus, as of, and, and you, you can regress it, so your regression, and you could regress it over the output gap. Output gap is the difference between current output and trend output. And when the gap is bigger, typically you will have, you will have counter cyclicality that when, when you have a bigger gap, you have a, a, a coefficient here which is a, a negative in front of the gap. You see, when you have a bigger gap, uh, in fact, you do more, uh, uh, more fiscal deficit, you see, uh, be, to counteract the, the, the fact that you have a big output uh, gap. Hmm? So, um, so the, the, this measure that you derive, you can then plug in and you can say, well, how does growth in countries depend on the extent to which they have counter-cyclical fiscal policy? Uh, and uh, more or less whether or not they are highly financially developed or low financial development. So I've done kind of previous work, which was cross-country panel, looking at uh, distinguishing between countries because there are countries that are more financially developed than others and trying to argue that it was particularly bad for countries with low financial development not to have counter-cyclical fiscal policies for their growth, you see. But there is all kind of econometric issues there because you have to estimate 
these varying uh, 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 you, need, you want to use because we have few countries you need to really play on the panel dimension and you need to estimate the countercyclicality by year and uh, doing that is a kind of very cumbersome method and that makes it very difficult to deal with endogeneity issues so you can do cross-country panel but it's a kind of problematic and difficult to do so I have a paper in the macro in the NBR macro annual where we, I try to do that but that you know, doesn't work uh, it has problems, I mean, and, you, and there is nothing you can do about that. It's a bit like when you do education cross-country. It, uh, it doesn't work so well. You can do all what you want, but you, it goes as far as it goes. Okay? So you have again to go to have more micro uh, regressions. Okay? So what I will do here is that I will say when... Uh, uh, and also going, because you are, you are concerned about reverse causality. You see, well, if suppose you see that counter-cyclical fiscal policy is good for growth when you have more financially constrained firms, does it, uh, suppose that you see a correlation that goes in that direction, does it say that it's the causality from cyclical policy to growth? It could be the causality from growth to cyclical policy. It could be that high growth reduces public debt, and therefore, uh, uh, it's, when you have reduced public debt, it's easier to cut tax or raise expenditure in bad times. So how can you know that you are capturing the causality, again, from the policy to the growth, and not from the growth to the policy? Okay, so again, you have to deal with the issue, like we had for education yesterday. Hmm? So, uh, uh, so what I will do here is, uh, 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 is, to be, is to go cross-sector. So we will look at cross-sector, cross-country. We take OECD countries and they have sectors. And uh, to, to deal with the endogeneity issue, we will say, well, sectors, you see, they are, uh, uh, the, these sectors have equivalent in the U.S., so we look at many countries except the U.S., but in the U.S., they have equivalent that are more or less financially dependent. They are more or less dependent on external finance. And so the prediction we will try to test is that counter-cyclical fiscal policy in the country is particularly good for growth in sectors whose equivalent in the U.S. rely a lot on external finance. Those are sectors that are more likely to be credit-constrained. And that, tell, and that gives you a measure of exogeneity because how much your credit constraint in the US, uh, you see, uh, does not depend upon what's going on in the, in the other country, you see, or very little. So that's how you, uh, that's how you solve uh, the, uh, you see, the, the endogeneity. You try to address the endogeneity uh, issue, you see, at a, by having this, uh, this method. So, uh, uh, so let me just show you uh, how we do. So the main regression equation is like this. Uh, you, you, you take a, a sector I in country J over a certain time period and you look at the average growth rate. It could be value-added growth over that period or labor productivity growth. Okay? And you regress that guy over, uh, uh, alors this alpha I is what we call, it's, a, it's an industry fixed effect. So it could be that you have characteristics of industries that, you know, make them grow faster or slower, you know, intrinsically, because it's that kind of industry. You want to take this out. You want to control for that. You want also to control for country fixed effect. And then you regress on the interaction between, uh, uh, the, uh, between the, the, the extent to which the, the sector has financial dependence in the U.S., the extent to which the, the same sector in the U.S. depends on external finance, Interacted, so that's a variable which is sector dependent, and interacted with the extent to which you have a counter cyclical policy in the country. So the idea is that when you have a more counter cyclical policy in the country, it's particularly good for growth for sectors that exhibit higher 
degree of financial dependence in the U.S. Okay, so that and here we control for uh, uh, here we control for uh, initial. Uh, let me just uh, because here I do everything without. Uh, uh, here we control for um, you see for uh, log of initial conditions. This initial income and uh, that's the white term. Okay, so that's the that's the regression. And, uh, uh, and the second regression, alors now, of course, you have to estimate the, the, the uh, counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So that will be the first stage. That's the second stage equation, and you, have, you need a third stage where you estimate uh, this guy. How you estimate this guy? So that's the following slide. What you do is that you regress over a certain time period uh, a fiscal variable, which can be primary fiscal balance, total fiscal balance over GDP, government revenues, government expenditure, or government consumption, or government investment. So that, that's the kind of gap you regress. And you regress it over the output gap in the country at a given time. So you, you take a certain time period, and you do, a, for the country, a panel regression, you see, to regress, to get one coefficient for uh, the, uh, the, the average degree, if you want, of counter-cyclicality of fiscal policy in that country over that time period, you see. And that's how you derive this ingredient, you see, it's like cooking, huh? you, you, have a, you have a pan, no? you do uh, some onions, uh, and then you, you put, once you derive this, uh, this from the, this uh, auxiliary cooking, huh? you, you put it back uh, here, and that becomes the guy you interact with financial dependence of the sector to look at the effect on growth. Okay, we, we are in agreement there, so far so good. If you are lost here, we are lost, I mean, go away. So interrupt me if, uh, okay? So that's what we are doing. Hmm? So, uh, uh, so what are the data? So we have three, three sources of data, okay? So we focus on industrialized OECD countries. So first, you remember that I told you that Easterly believes that, you know, once you control for institutions like uh, expropriation, uh, then, you know, policy has no effect. Well, that's a way to answering to Mr. Easterly, because here you have countries that in terms, so maybe now you will say since the last crisis, we, in fact, we discover we are, we are bad countries, all of us, but we are among countries that Easterly would have considered to be normal countries, believe it or not, okay? So OECD countries are all countries that qualify the normality test of Easterly, and still we will say huge effect of policy. Uh, on growth, okay? So that's a kind of big way to get back to history and say, you were, you, to do the race as you did, you, you, you missed something, okay? So you have three, uh, uh, so we have three types of data sets. Okay, the first data set is industry-level data, which will, may, will be useful to measure productivity growth and value-added growth. And this is a, a, a data set which has uh, 18 OECD countries, uh, 45 <coughs> manufacturing industries over these countries, over a time span of 25 years. So that's a very nice data set. Now, Amadeus is a kind of extended way, uh, extended form of this, which is cross-industry, cross-country developed, okay? But that's a kind of... Uh, so that's for the uh, industry-level data for productivity global added growth. Then you have the financial dependence data from Rajan Zingales 98 and, and, and an updated version of it, which is Radax 2006. They are based on CompuStat, which gathers balance sheets, data, and income statements from US listed firms, huh? the firms that are listed on stock markets. And the data cover the period 1890. Uh, uh, and then the macro variables, which is fiscal and control variables, are drawn from OECD economic out, uh, outlook, or the World Bank Financial Structure and Development data set, and the time span is identical to the one of the industry level data. Okay, so now I will show you a few tables, and, uh, uh, and then we try to learn from that, okay? 
So this is the basic table. I regress total fiscal, uh, I regress growth, value-added growth in a sector as a function of the interaction between uh, the cyclicality of total fiscal balance in the country interacted with the extent to which this sector is more or less financially dependent uh, in the US. Okay? And what you see is that whichever time period you take, you find a high and highly significant at the 1% level uh, interaction coefficient between external financial dependence and total fiscal balance, you see. So uh, the more financially dependent, the more it's good for growth of the sector that you have in the country a counter-cyclical fiscal policy. And uh, in fact, I've done some work now on, on firm level, where you find very similar things at firm level. Uh, they, you know, but that's just for France, and I don't have, that. I don't have a cross-country on that. So then you can, uh, you can uh, uh, and it's stable over period, you can now do primary fiscal balance. So you don't uh, factor in interest payments, but it's uh, instead of the total fiscal balance. And you find similarly that you know, the, the cyclicality uh, the counter-cyclicality in the primary fiscal balance interacted with uh, uh, external fi uh, financial dependence is strongly positive and significant. You see? So you, it's very important for long-run growth how you do your short-run macro policy. Hmm? Uh, I keep going. So now we look at productivity growth instead of, uh, instead of just value-added growth. And you find also, again, very significant uh, coefficient, but they are a little bit lower. And in fact, they are 70% of, the, of the what you have for the value-added growth. Because in fact, 70% of the effect goes through productivity, and 30% goes through uh, added labor. When you are more counter-cyclical firms, hire more people. So part of it is a volume effect, and part of it is a productivity effect. And you can factor, you can, you can, you can look at which fraction is, a, is a firms hiring more people, and which fraction is firms innovating more. So that's what you get from this. Oops. So that's the, kind of, that's the scatter plot corresponding to the last regression. Uh, so now you could say, well, uh, you can keep going. You say, well, you know, you have in fact sectors which are good. They are, not, they are not in need. You have sectors which have in fact a negative external financial dependence. Those are sectors for which the capital expenditure is less than the amount of retained earnings. So they have a surplus of funds, not enough. You see what I mean? They are, so those sectors, if you have those sectors, uh, the, the financial dependence is negative. If you found a positive coefficient on the interaction between financial dependence and counter-cyclicality, it would mean for those sectors that you want a pro-cyclical fiscal policy, not a counter-cyclical, because minus by minus is a plus. Okay? So far, you understand this one? No, I don't. So, so the thing is that you say, well, I want to make sure that this is not happening. So what we do here is that we separate sectors in between those who have positive external dependence in the U.S. and those who have negative external dependence. And you see that the sign is negative for those of those, which is exactly what you want, for those of the sectors that have negative external financial dependence. So it, it also for those sectors, you want counter-cyclical policy, although it's less significant than for the positive external finance. You see, so that, that's, uh, that's what you get from this. Uh, from this uh, and that's the same here with primary fiscal balance and productivity growth. Again, uh, you find that the signs are negative for the, uh, the, the, neg uh, uh, for the negative uh, financial dependence and positive for the positive financial dependence. Both of them need counter-cyclical fiscal policies. So uh, now you have a like, question you can ask. You can ask yourself, well, uh, how big are these effects? Are those big effects or not? Maybe those are very small effects after all. Hmm? 
The second question you want to ask, okay, you want to do counter-cyclical fiscal, but you have many ways of doing deficit. You can reduce taxes or increase spending. Or you can have government consumption, government investment, and uh, tr more transfers. You see, I mean, you have various ways of doing it. So you want to open a bit of black box. What, is, what does matter there? Okay, what is important? And, uh, and also you want to try some control. So does the effect of fiscal policy solve the inclusion of controls describing fiscal policy itself or structural characteristics of the economy? So let me just run through a few, a few tests there. So, uh, for example, here what we do is we compute a growth gain uh, in an industry that moves from the 25th uh, percentile to the 75th percentile in external finance. So you, you, aggravate, you aggravate his external finance. You, you take a sector and you say you were a low quarter side of external finance, you go to low quartile and you go to the high quartile of external finance. And, and you move from a country with a low degree of uh, counter-cyclical policy to a country with high degree of, 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 of counter-cyclical policy. When you do these two things, by how much does growth in your, uh, in your sector uh, increase? And uh, it increases, you see the value-added growth, uh, depending on the time period you choose, uh, varies between one, the, the gain is between 1.3% uh, percent, percent and 1.7%. Or if you look at productivity growth, it's between 0.86 and 1.36%. So that's, alors now you say, well, is that big or is that small? Well, in fact, you see, Rajan Zingales, when they did their initial study on uh, interacting uh, financial dependence and, and financial development, they tried to see, you know, to which extent uh, when you, uh, you move from the, the, the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile in the interaction between financial dependence and financial development, by how much does growth increase? And they found data, they found uh, comparable magnitude, they found 1%. So you find that the effects are, uh, of the equivalent as Rajan Zingales had uh, effects, where there it was just the interaction between financial dependence and financial development in the country, financial dependence in the sector and financial dependence and then financial constraint in the country. So it's a, it's a very, it's a Rajan Zingales comparable uh, magnitude effect. Okay, so that's quite big. Hmm? So, uh, the, uh, and again, 70% of the increase in value-added steps from an increase in labor productivity, the other 30% step of increase in employment. Okay, so that's the magnitude. Now you want to look at revenue versus expenditure. Should you want to reduce tax for firms or to increase expenditure? And what's very interesting here, is that you find that expenditure doesn't seem to have uh, a big effect. Sometimes it does, but not that much. So it's not really the expenditure side that you want to be counter-cyclical. So, uh, um, uh, on the other hand, when you look at the, at the government spending uh, counter-cyclicality, which is here, there you find big effects. So that's interesting. You might ask yourself, why is it? So, for example, you say you could have counter-cyclicality by reducing tax in, of that first pay in good in bad times. That's like reducing your revenues. You're not increasing your spending. You are reducing your tax revenues. Well, that doesn't have so much of an effect. And now you may ask, why is that? So it could be several reasons. One could be that you just uh, you have a demand channel at work. That firms, in fact, is because they have a demand for products that they innovate more. So it, 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 I think my take on it is this moral hazard. If I just give tax holidays to firms, they sleep, you see? They just are uh, like my, you know, Egyptian ancestors, huh? But, uh, but if, uh, if, uh, if they, uh, if they, oh my God, God, I don't want to insult Egypt, huh, by the way. 
But if you if you just give uh, if you tell them look I will uh, spend more on clean like Obama says you know I will spend more on clean you know I will uh, I will induce clean innovations building things then and I will do procurement uh, you know I will uh, have you know um, I will uh, organize race between terms to get the procurement contract and uh, then you induce innovation you see and that's the way to do it so that tells you something that how you should run a counter cyclical policy there might be a good way and a bad way and that's very much in the debates uh, on stimulus packages that we are having now huh? so that's uh, not irrelevant okay so uh, uh, now uh, I want to just look now at various aspects of economies that say maybe we're capturing something else than what we are capturing. You see, that's always they tell you. You show regression. Ah, oh, that's very nice regression. But you're capturing something else than what you think you're capturing. So, uh, you could say, well, you know, it could be that, you know, uh, current account matters. For example, if you're in a country with current account deficit, presumably you have a lot of capital inflows. Typically, firms are more able to attract capital, and they should not be the same as, as in countries that have current account surpluses. Well, maybe typically firms may be more starved of, of cash and, and financing. So you want to see whether it makes a difference, and you see that it doesn't. If you control for uh, current account balance uh, interacted with, uh, uh, with, interacted with uh, financial dependence, you see they are never significant, and it doesn't affect the coefficients on the uh, interaction between counter-cyclical fiscal policy and uh, financial dependence. So that's not very, it doesn't play a big role, okay? So now it's more interesting what is inflation. So now you move to monetary policy. See? There is a lot of, all of those are papers to write. So for those who are in thesis, you, here, each of them is a paper, huh? uh, free of charge. So, uh, oh God, where is the inflation? Oh, no, 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 I want my inflation. Where is my inflation? Excellent, excellent, I have it, I have it. Okay, inflation. Well, if you are in a country with higher inflation, typically, well, the problem with inflation is that the financial system, when you have high inflation, allocates capital less efficiently. Uh, it should be particularly helpful for industries with high financial dependence. Because for those guys who need capital to flow in, uh, you know, investors will have more difficulty in identifying the good and the bad investments when you have higher inflation. That's typically an effect that you have when you have higher inflation. So what you should observe is that typically industries, growth in industries that are more financially uh, dependent are those would suffer particularly with inflation. Inflation is particularly bad for growth in industries that are more in need of reallocation of, of, of capital inflows, okay? But now, uh, that's exactly what you find here. You see, that's very interesting. Oh, God. I, I just go. Uh, it's just what I get here. You see, these, all these interactions are positive significant. Uh, negative significant. The higher inflation, the more, uh, the, the more, the, the, the worse it is for growth. To high, uh, you see, the, or the, the more you are financially dependent on external finance, the worse for growth it is to have high inflation in the country. So you find that effect. But controlling for that does not affect the uh, interplay between counter-cyclical fiscal policy and the financial de dependence of the sector. You see, so the inflation story is there. But it's a story which is on top of the story I'm telling about the fiscal policy. Uh, so that's interesting in itself because there is, I think, very interesting work to be done on inflation and, uh, and the cost of inflation and growth based on this kind of regression, which I think has not been much explored. But it's, it's orthogonal, very, uh, uh, largely orthogonal to what I've been uh, uh, focusing on. Okay. <laughs> 
So uh, now, uh, uh, financial development. It could be that the, the it could be that the countercyclicality of fiscal policy is a reflection is a reflection, in fact, of, finan of financial development. In fact, you know, you have the, I am a more financially developed country. That's why I can be more countercyclical. For example, in bad times, the government could borrow. Uh, could, you know, it's easier to borrow from abroad. And, and that's why I can also be more counter-cyclical. So you see, the financial development that applies to firms, in a sense, applies also to governments, and that's why they could be more counter-cyclical. Alors now you can run, you can uh, uh, control for the uh, interplay between uh, financial dependence of the sector and the average private credit to GDP ratio in the country. You find effects, like that's the Rajan Zingales, in fact, uh, uh, effect, which is not so big for OECD countries, interestingly. But when you control for that, it does not affect the uh, interplay between cyclicality of fiscal policy and financial dependence of the sector. So you have a, a Rajan Zingales effect, pure Rajan Zingales, but it's on top of, of the previous one, you see. That's the, that's the thing you find. And the uh, 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 last thing I want to talk about is average fiscal policy. It could be the case that in fact, well, your counter-cyclicality of fiscal policy just reflects a better design fiscal policy. For example, more counter-cyclical fiscal policy could just reflect a higher fiscal discipline in the country. So what we do here, we do a horse race between the interaction between uh, uh, external finance and, and the counter-cyclicality of fiscal policy and, and, and financial dependence and the average total fiscal balance. And you see that the race is won overwhelmingly by the counter-cyclical fiscal policy. It doesn't mean that you should not be disciplined, but it means that the big advantage of discipline plays through the fact that it allows you to be more counter-cyclical. You see what I mean? You don't have a, a big effect on top of. So fiscality is good because it allows you precisely to be more counter-cyclical. And that's the main channel whereby this is good for long-run growth. You see? So it's not that I'm not advocating fiscal discipline, but that the way it works is, is this. So now that we came to the conclusion of this first, uh, of this first uh, thing, uh, counter-cyclical fiscal policy raises long-run industry growth, all the more so in industries with higher external uh, financial dependence. Uh, I look for future research, you should look at other interactors. I look for external dependence, but you could look at asset tangibility in the sector. We started to look at it, we get similar things. Capital labor ratios and other things, that has other interactors. You could look at the composition of government expenditure, consumption investment, and you could look at the difference between macro and industrial policy, because when you start doing counter-cyclical fiscal policy, now not only you have uh, uh, ECFIN against you, but now you start having the competition commission against you in Brussels. So, uh, and uh, uh, that I think is a very interesting issue in itself, uh, you know, uh, to which extent, uh, you know, you, you can say that uh, it's truly uh, macro policy you are doing and not disguised bad industrial policy you are doing. So just on consumption and, and, and investment, let me just show you a table. When you interact uh, government consumption, the cyclicality of government consumption, there is very significant. So we see that a lot of action goes from the consumption part of the deficit. So we know already that it's the expenditure, it's not so much the revenues, it's the expenditure of government you want to be counter-cyclical, and particularly in consumption here. You might say, why not investment? Or now in the investment, you see much less of an effect. And why is that? And our take on it, is because, in fact, with investment, what happens is that investment is typically targeted to particular sectors. But remember that in these regressions, I control for industry fixed effect. So when you have targeted policies and you control for industry fixed effect, you, uh, the, the control for industry fixed effect absorbs, in fact, most of the effect of the targeted policy. The difference is that consumption increase 
is much less targeted towards particular sector. You see, so that's the big difference: is that one is targeted, the, the other one is much less targeted. So there, there is the issue. It could be just that it has an effect, but it's swallowed by the industry effect, or that objectively you want uh, to put more emphasis on consumption part of government than on investment, and that's uh, something which is still to be sorted out. So, uh, um, so that's the that's the that's the, that's the oh, there is a slight missing because this you see that finishes the first part of the talk. Okay, that's on macro policy. Are you still alive? <laughs> Are you still alive? Yeah. Well, you never say. Okay. Do you want me to go? Who wants me to go on with the next? Yeah. Who doesn't want me to go on with the next? <laughs> I go on. I go on. Well, it's true. It's a bit, uh, was the special. It's a, uh, okay, so uh, Lee, uh, how are you doing? Yes, yes, yes. Whoa, okay. So there was a slide here called Growth, it was a title slide called Part 3, and it was very nicely put Growth and the Environment. So you missed, uh, imagine the slide. I like the 20th century Fox, da 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 da, Growth and the Environment. <laughs> so, okay, so here we are. Okay, and now we go to. I start like this because you will suffer a little bit on mass, but look, I will spoon feed you with, uh, with the mass. So, uh, you will see some equations, but just listen, if you, if you don't like to see the equations, don't look at them. It's like vertigo, you see? Don't look at it. You see the vacuum, don't look at it, and uh, uh, you will find. And if you, uh, you can, uh, oh, but already, but I mentioned that, I have. But I didn't mention that already. Okay. So you have a growing concern, there's been a growing concern that economic growth is not sustainable because of the negative impact on the environment, pollution, global warming, or, and or the depletion of natural resources. And for many years, until people started to do endogenous growth, we had models that would tell you that, you know, of course, with limited resources, you cannot have long-run growth. Even AK model, the easy AK model, you know, the one tells you that if, you, if the production depends on the exhaustible results, the AK model, uh, in fact, uh, tells you there is no longer growth. Why? Because in an AK model, knowledge is capital accumulation are the same thing. So the only way you can escape a resource is by innovating. But innovation in an AK model, it's capital accumulation. And, uh, but to accumulate that capital, you have to produce more and therefore to, to use more of the resource. So if you want to do, to look at growth, sustainable growth in an AK model, it's like a snake eating its own tail. You want to grow by, uh, by innovating, but then you eat your own tail, you see, in order to innovate. And that's the AK. The AK is a snake eating its own tail. So the only hope is to have a model where knowledge and capital accumulation are two different things. And that's why you get into the Schumpeterian type of models, okay? And that's why we... Alors, the common point with the previous thing is that we will look at taxation policy. And again here, even short-term taxation policy can have a long-run effect. So that will be the common point between this and the previous, is that short-term tax, short-term fiscal policy can have also uh, long-run uh, effects on growth, okay? But through different channels. Okay. Of course, I should uh, I mention uh, Nick's report, which uh, assesses the cost of not acting on climate change. Uh, but of course, there is a debate that you use, uh, you didn't use endogenous growth models, how would you reassess the costs and benefits of acting on climate change once you factor in the fact that when you tax dirty input, you induce innovation on clean inputs. So that might reduce the cost after all. Maybe we overestimated the cost, maybe not, to which extent? So those are big questions and I won't answer them here. Uh, uh, and, uh, and there is a large ratio on sustainable growth in environmental disasters, but all of them look at exogenous growth. Okay, so uh, for example, there's been uh, uh, an interesting work by a guy in Syracuse. Now, that's a very funny story. Yeah, it's a fan. I, I, I wanted to collaborate. It's the only time I could not collaborate with someone because I'm afraid of flying. To go from Boston to Syracuse, you need to take propellers. It's the only way. 
And uh, so we were supposed to meet and we, we cancelled the meeting. So that's a fantastic, could have been a fantastic collaboration, but they, have, they don't have jet planes from Boston to Syracuse, and therefore we never took off the collaboration. The plane did without me, but not the collaboration. Okay? So that's the, that's the story. Uh, you see, uh, so, so what he showed this guy, what he showed is that more energy saving, you see, they look these guys as an oil shock. And you look at whether the oil shock had induced innovations in various sectors. And what he found, in fact, using panel data, cross-sector panel data, is that, in fact, increase in energy price had induced more patenting in sectors in the U.S., which were uh, energy-saving sectors, you see. So really what you had is induced innovation and used patent measures to show that there was something. Though so there is evidence that when you are facing increased price on, some, uh, on energy, for example, you innovate to save energy. But in the same way, if I tax energy use because it's dirty, it would have the same effect as an oil shock, and it will induce innovation in uh, a clean input, and that's what I'm, we are exploring here. So that's what I will be doing here, is to do theory, but I'll show you a bit how I do with theory, and I will explain theory really uh, well, you know, to make it uh, as, as uh, and, uh, the sugar that makes the medicine go down, huh? the, the story of... Uh, so the big question I'm asking, uh, the big question I'm asking here now is, uh, knowing that tax on dirty input induce technological change, should innovation aimed at, at saving on these dirty inputs, how should we receive the taxation of dirty uh, input activity? So, uh, I mean, this is a bit of jargon, okay? But it means that you produce using a dirty basket and a clean basket, okay? So you produce using these two. The dirty activities deplete the stock of environmental capital, but on the other hand, you have a regeneration at some rate of, of uh, environment. And of course, the effect, the, prim the primary effect of a tax on dirty production activity and innovation activity will be to encourage innovation in the clean production technology instead. We said, well, to say such a triviality, you don't need to write a model, no? So I try to, that's what I took about economics to my dad. My dad said, well, all these equations are there. They really ask me a kind of stupid question. They say, come on, if it's all these equations to say something so stupid, well, you need to do write all your models and things. So I try to convince you that I can get from modeling more than this kind of obvious statement. Okay, that's my challenge. So uh, the kind of preview of the main results that we try to, to, to argue and try to explain the intuition for you is that uh, uh, an economy with, uh, in laissez-faire without tax and subsidies can often end up in a disaster. That means that people don't internalize the environmental externality and at some moment the environment becomes so bad that everything collapses in the, in, in the, in, in the, in the economy. So you end up in, you can produce disaster and I will show you why. But now, if the government can achieve long-run sustainable growth, uh, where you could not in an AK model, with a temporary policy inducing a switch from dirty uh, innovation and production to clean innovation and production. Uh, and, uh, and, and what's interesting is that if the, if the dirty and clean baskets are sufficiently substitutes in the production of final goods, you don't need to have a long-lasting tax. You could have a temporary tax. And in fact, what you might want to do, if you don't discount the future too much, if you're not too impatient, is to be kind of shock therapy now, do, suffer a lot now, because very quickly then you can get rid of that tax, you see? The more you do now, the more quickly you can get rid of the tax. On the other hand, if the basket and the clean and the dirty baskets are complementary, then you have a problem, because if you innovate on the clean, if you induce innovation on the clean, you always need the dirty, but the, the clean, the dirty uh, input becomes more scarce compared than the dirty because you are less productive on the dirty activities than on the clean ones. And the scarcity may increases the relative price of dirty inputs 
But because the relative price has increased, it's very profitable to do production there. And uh, you want to prevent that, and to prevent that you need all the time to tax the dirty activities, and to counteract this price effect that always brings you back to the dirty activities. And in that case, you need a permanent, uh, more permanent uh, tax policy on dirty inputs. Okay? Uh, then when you, you, we look at the case where dirty input production requires the use of an exhaustible resource, in that case, laissez-faire economy may lead to sustainable long-run growth under broader condition, because what happens is that the uh, relative increase in the relative price of the, uh, uh, of the dirty input, because it becomes more difficult to produce, it's true it's more scarce, it's also more costly to, to extract. You see, as the less resource you have, the cost of extraction goes up, and this increase in cost of extraction acts like a tax already. So, so sometimes it may be such that you don't need to tax because the extraction cost may be sufficient to do it. Uh, in some cases, that's a theoretical possibility that sometimes uh, you would uh, be able to avoid the tax if the, the extraction cost is sufficiently uh, sharply increasing. So now then there is a two-country world, and that's a very interesting thing. You now move to a country where the world where you have north and south, and you have the north, and the south imitates the north, essentially. So then you have like two externalities between north and south. On the one hand, you have an environmental externality. Both of them dump dirty stuff that deteriorates the global environment. So you have an environmental externality. But you also have a knowledge externality because the knowledge of the north is imitated by the south. And what happens is that sometimes the, uh, the technological spillover uh, can make it in such a way that you don't need to tax the south. For example, it could be enough. You see, so very often people say it's China that we could tax. We say, no, maybe not China. Why don't we tax US, France, UK on dirty activities? They innovate only on clean. But then because China imitates the, the, the state of the art in, in, in Europe, they will imitate the clean. And so you don't need to tax China anymore because the, the technological spillover will do the trick. Alors, unfortunately, it doesn't work always. You need enough substitution, you need certain conditions to be true. And particularly, one thing that becomes important is that if you allow now free trade with China, China would say, ah, you tax clean product, uh, dirty production in the UK, for example, or in the US, I can, and now there is trade liberalization, I could specialize in the production of dirty things. And, uh, and uh, that's a kind of converse uh, effect that free trade introduces. And in that case, free trade might go together We say, okay, free trade, guys, but then you have to tax your dirty activities. We cannot have both free trade and you not taxing because then the effect I was mentioning before may not play anymore. You see, and then you get into all this area of how trade and environmental policy play with each other and you get into conditional trade very naturally, you see. That's the, now you got the paper, I could stop there. You are up? So now I just show some math. That is, that's it. That's, that's the content. You see? You see how we see politics? No model, no equation. Ah, no, nothing. Uh, okay. Now all that I do is to show how the dress was made. You know, it's like a dress, so you show the dress, it's a nice dress, but then you have to show the, what you call the patron. How do you call the model? The, how do you call the thing where you put the, the, the clothes on uh, in English? We say the patron. Uh, in, uh, we say the boss in French. <laughs> it's a strange word. I mean, say the patron, but I don't know how you're using that. So now I show the patron of this. Okay. Okay. So uh, I will show you the basic model. I will characterize the optimal policy, and uh, that's the most mathematical. So tomorrow it's much less mathematical. So don't think that tomorrow will be like today. Tomorrow today is the kind of you're showing, you know, proving yourself that you can be followed. But tomorrow the reward it will be much easier. Okay. So you don't think I'm going like this, I'm going more like that. I've inverted you. So, in difficulty. So, so, uh, that's the, the, so that's the outline that I will follow. 
So I just, I mean, let's go slowly, okay? I do what I do. How much longer do I have? I have like five minutes? Five minutes? <laughs> five, five minutes. Oh, yes, the leave time for questions. Okay, so I will just go very, I will just go, you know, very, uh, I think, you know, essentially I said most. I mean, I just show you how it's done. Uh, you do, you see, how you do it, okay? That cook recipe. You take a dirty basket, you take a clean basket, and together they produce final output, okay? Uh, uh, and these guys there are, uh, reflect the degree of complementarity. So, for example, if epsilon is much bigger than 1, this goes to 1. For example, if epsilon becomes plus infinity, these guys become 1, and you have essentially y equal yc plus yd. That's a case of perfect substituability. But when epsilon is small, it's a case of complementarity. So that's a key parameter, because you remember my story, that temporary tax in the substitutable case, the non-temporary tax in the, in the complementary case, okay? Now these guys, YC, YD, are produced with intermediate inputs, and the innovation are the quality of the intermediate inputs. So growth in this model is generated by innovation that can either go to improve uh, dirty inputs that produce the dirty basket, or clean inputs that produce the clean basket. And that's what the government policy will do, is to try to influence how much innovation goes there or there, okay? So uh, now the production of the dirty input, uh, the S, uh, there is a variant, uh, variable S, which is environment. And environment accumulates, but you see the problem is that dirty production reduces the S. You see, when you do dirty production, you deteriorate the environment. But on the other hand, environment, I'm sorry, I didn't want to meet you. Environment has the nice uh, quality of regenerating a little bit, you see? So you have the delta is the rate of regeneration. So, you, you have this help, but on the other hand, you should be careful on how much YD you produce. If you produce too much YD, you deteriorate the environment. Now you can see why, why is it bad. S doesn't appear neither here or here, but it appears on the next slide, because you see your utility, so here you could put it on production as well, but here the utility of individuals uh, depends on S. Essentially, when, uh, when S is, uh, so when S is very uh, below zero, essentially you die, okay? So there is no utility. <laughs> Or minus fifty, but so that's not good. But the environment has also something nice here: is that you know, when you have enough fresh air, you don't need fresher air. If I am in Richmond Park, it will not change my life that I go from Richmond Park to that diesel, for example. Right? That's what I assume here. Right? I'm already very happy in Richmond Park, and I don't need to go. Maybe you said that it's a uh, bad example. But uh, Isabella, Isabella plantation. So, so. Uh, so the, the idea that you is associated with S, I mean, beyond certain level of S, you don't need more, but you are, you are okay. You see what I mean? Uh, you are associated with environment, but you need to have a minimum amount. And in fact, you have to maximize the data for utility, but it depends on consumption and this S. You could put the S in the production. Okay, so innovation now can either increase the AIJ, uh, it multiplies the AI by one plus gamma. And the more scientists you hire uh, to do this, the, 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 in fact, the higher the probability of innovating. Okay? So the, you, if you hire more people on, on innovating on clean, you, you are more likely to innovate on clean. If you are hire more people to innovate on dirty, you are more likely to innovate on dirty. Okay? So, so that's uh, And of course, uh, the people will choose, so that this condition looks trivial, but it comes after a lot of calculation. Uh, innovation will appear, will occur in the clean sector, even only if this uh, inequality holds. 
Uh, and then you have like two effects. So if Epsilon is greater than one, it means that you always tend to innovate in the sector with which are the most productive. So you see that will be very interesting because that gives you the, already the idea of the temporary tax. If I, with the temporary tax, I force innovation for a while only in the clean sector. So then at some moment, the AC becomes bigger than the AD and then I'm fine because then automatically this inequality is satisfied and people will stop innovating in the dirty and I'm done. But you see that on the other hand, when Epsilon is less than one, the, the, there is a reverse effect, and the reverse effect is, is because of the price effect. It's because when you innovate more on the clean, the dirty could be more scarcer, and that brings you back. And, that, and, that's, and that's the epsilon minus one is the component of the productivity effect and the price effect. And that's, and, that, and that's the whole economics of this model. If you understand this inequality, you've got the whole model. You see? That's what's that. So now you say that the disaster occurs if the environmental quality reaches zero in finite time. And the result, first result, is that you have a sufficiently low rate of regeneration uh, of, of, uh, of, of environment, and you start from a high level AD0 of AC0, but then if you start from a high level of that, people will tend to go produce in the dirty and not in the clean, and they will in fact, because you don't have enough regeneration, they will in fact, the laissez-faire economy will go to oblivion. You see? They, uh, uh, and that may happen. So that's the model where, you know, we nicely, happily, Go into the world. No, say uh, go into zero. Okay. So now here come the governments. Okay. Da -da -da. The government comes and say, I will, I can deal with the pollution externality, knowledge spillover externality, monopoly distortion, and I can do, uh, uh, I can do welfare improvement. So now the government is like so. Alors, this is just to show you that when you do a social welfare maximization in economics, it looks always awful like that. Uh, don't leave, don't leave. Wait, let me see. I'll show you how bad it is. You maximize intertemporal consumption, that's uh, uh, intertemporal welfare, subject to resource constraints. So I just wrote here the equation how you produce final output, uh, intermediate output consumption is final output minus consumption of intermediate input, and that's the uh, environment equation, that's the fact that the labor is limited by labor supply, that's the productivity equation, remember that's the rate at which you innovate on, uh, on uh, innovation on sector AJ, AJ, and that's the fact that you have the uh, uh, researchers, the number of researchers is given. So you do something like this, but what's nice with it is that you get a very nice formula. You can characterize the optimal tax policy, and it takes this very nice form. In fact, you can implement the social optimal through a tax on the dirty input, on the use of it, a, sub, a tax subsidy on the profits realized in the dirty sector to uh, allocate innovation, and a subsidy in the use of intermediate inputs to, uh, to get rid of the monopoly distortion. But what's very interesting is the expression for the input tax. The tax will be on production of dirty or clean baskets. And what's very interesting is that we know that, uh, suppose that, for example, the goods, so let's look at it in more detail. When the goods are sufficiently substituted, I know that at some moment, you stop, you, suppose you tax the dirty input uh, uh, sector, and you know that when goods are sufficiently substituted, anyway, people will stop producing a dirty input. So that means that at that point, because environment regenerates at rate delta, and you stop producing YD, you will have environment increasing, 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 you go way beyond Richmond, okay? But because you go way beyond Richmond, S goes to infinity, and because I have satiation in, in, in uh, my utility, uh, you see, it means that in finite time, there is no need to put the taxation because this term becomes equal to zero. So this tells you right away that when you have sufficiently substitutable inputs, taxation is temporary. You don't need permanent taxation. But of course, on the other hand, if the goods are complementary, then it's a different story because, uh, because in fact, what happens uh, uh, when epsilon is small, the dirty input basket remains 
necessary for final production all the time. And all the more when productivity has increased in the clean, in the clean sectors, because the more clean means you, you need to use more dirty with it. And uh, this is the calls for permanent taxation of dirty production to prevent disaster. Because when you have innovating on the clean, you increase the demand for, for dirty input, which is complementary to the clean input, you see. And that's why you want to maintain the tax forever. So, so that's all what it's saying here. When you have high epsilon temporary tax dollars, when you have low epsilon, you need to, to get profit ta input and profit tax permanent uh, uh, to make sure that, uh, that, you, uh, that you don't go into disaster. So, so that's all. Now you say, well, what we get from this in terms of taxation? Suppose I go back to Nick. Nick asks me, okay, it's very nice math, or maybe not very nice, not very elegant, but okay, what, you sh what should you tell me? Well, so Nick, Nick well, so far, what we could say is that long-run economic growth can be preserved by a tax policy, which already is something. You can preserve long-run economic growth. But this may require a reduction of economic growth in the short run, particularly in the case where you have substitute ability between dirty and clean baskets. You, the more substitutable they are, the more harsh you want to be in the short run to very quickly get, uh, get out of the, uh, the taxing, and, uh, and that's what you would like to do, right? the short therapy. Uh, so, uh, uh, and also you want to, don't, not just input tax, you would like a profit tax to reallocate uh, 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 research labor, okay? So you want both the su switch soon to clean production and innovation, and add a profit tax or subsidy to innovation in addition to the usual carbon tax that you are considering, okay? So, I, yeah, I should, uh, I should continue, uh, I should not continue. Here is the case where you have a resource, an exhaustible resource to produce the dirty, uh, and the resource depletes here, but there is extraction costs that increase, that with the lower Q, the higher the, extract, the marginal cost of extraction. And once you have that, you have this term, and you see it is very similar to before. So now you have this term, so you see that if an epsilon is greater than one, the extraction cost will induce more going to the clean because going to the dirty means that you have to pay this higher extraction cost. It's like a tax. But when epsilon is less than one, this plays against you because it means that in fact the price effect will have even worse effects in, in now that it had before. So you see the extraction cost has opposite effects depending on whether you have complementarity or substituability between the clean and the dirty inputs. That's what you get from a model that you could not get without the model. Huh? So, uh, but what's nice is that because when epsilon is greater than one, you can avoid the necessary economy, can avoid disaster more often because this C of Q plays the role of the tax. Okay, so now the two country case. The two country, what I had in mind was just this that you, you, the, the, you have a north and a south. The, the south uh, acquire the technology of the north with a, with a you know, productivity, the probability that depends only on, on northern uh, variables, whereas the pollution depends on the production of dirty in the north and the south. So this is, this is the environmental externality, whereas this is the technological externality, you see? And so you have two types of externality, environmental, that pushes towards free riding. If just for the environmental externality, China would free ride on, on, on UK, or for UK would free ride on China, it's more like, and, but because of the knowledge externality, the South is more willing to switch to clean technology once the North has done so. And so what you want to know is what is the interaction effect uh, uh, between the two. And, uh, uh, and in fact, you have this, uh, this equation. Again, you get to something which depends again on whether you are substitute or complements. And uh, you have several forces at work. But, the, uh, but the, the, bottom line, the bottom line is in fact that uh, the bottom line is that uh, in the subsidy, either in the baskets are sufficiently substitutes or complements, in fact the technological spillover helps you. 
it's only the intermediate region that the, uh, that the spillover doesn't reach you. Because when you have substitutability, the, the knot will move to clean forever, and then you will do the same. If it's very complementary, the, the, the north will, will very limit both the, south, uh, the innovation on the, on the clean and dirty input. Uh, sorry about that. And, uh, and in that case, it's fine because you imitate something that doesn't grow too fast. So you are still okay. The case where you're not okay are intermediate case of substitutability between clean and dirty input. Where there, you may have to tax the south, not just rely on the technological externality. So, uh, 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 so the, the main lessons are this, and I'm done. Uh, uh, the temporary taxation of dirty is enough uh, uh, to when sustainability decays to achieve long-run growth sustainability. And uh, the use of exhaustible resource helps the switch toward key innovation inputs are substituted enough. In the two-country case, a tax on dirty innovation production in the north may be sufficient uh, to, to sustain global growth uh, if you have sufficiently large knowledge spillover, but less so if you have free trade between north and south, because then the south would have the perverse reaction of going a lot into dirty stuff that they could sell cheaply in the north and that you want to avoid. And that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of thinking that we, uh, that we have. So I think I will stop there for today. You've been extremely brave. I want to thank you for your patience. Uh, tomorrow will be easier, easier ride. Thank you. Benefits 
of taxing uh, uh, dirty, uh, you know, uh, CO2, etc. Because uh, uh, taking into account, and my guess is that the cost will be less because because the study report doesn't take into account the fact that you have induced technological change. And there is a whole debate also on discount rates, you know, between Nix and uh, Weizmann, which is the right. But this, but on both sides of the debate on the discount rates, they don't factor in for the moment the endogenous technical change dimension, which I think is first order. I think Nick also believes it, by the way. But I should not talk speak for him, but let He told me that he believes it. Another question? Yes. Just a question. Just a question on the globalization issue, obviously the extension to the G20 and looking at issues around the world. I think it's becoming evident that there's probably imbalances in the world economy. Uh, from a policy perspective, do you think it's going to be necessary going forward that we address these imbalances to the benefit and competitive nature of individual national states? Or do you think we're going to go towards more blocked countries competing with each other to get blocked? There is, a, there is a risk. I mean, there is a risk, you know, that in the absence of coordination, you go, that after, after the crisis of the 30s, that people went back to protectionism. So you could imagine, for example, you know, China not cooperating on exchange rates, for example, then the Americans said, you know, we let the dollar go down because we have a lot of debt vis-à-vis -vis the foreign, foreign countries. That would be a way to, to, you know, to reduce the real value of our debt. We, we let the dollar go down again. And, of course, the euro cannot go down. You can let the pound go down, but we, the euro, we cannot, uh, so you let the euro go down, we both not. But maybe then the reaction would be in that world that European countries would become protections. You say, this is with the monetary side doesn't do, doesn't replicate to the, the, to the, to what the Fed is doing or what the Bank of England might do. Uh, we would respond, then countries would, you know, with trade restrictions. So there is a danger of a non-cooperative response to the crisis. And, and I, think, uh, I think there is a big need, both on environment and on, on uh, uh, financial regulation and on exchange, right, to have, a, to have China and India uh, part of a, of a group where you coordinate, where you say, look, uh, so for example, now you are exporting a lot, now you can really less on export, maybe a bit. you have to build up your internal demand. Maybe that implies an adjustment of your exchange rate. Maybe you have various things to do, you see what I mean? And maybe we can discuss that. It's not that we tell you what to do, but we could have at least a dialogue and we have an idea of what each of us is doing. And I think... Uh, there's a suspected suspicion that the growth of the West has been created predominantly by the creditors of power. And therefore, taking away the factors of production, i.e. what is it that we produce that actually contributes to a GDP and therefore Yeah, so, so the Greek can you still have high growth without, you know, I mean, you could say, well, it could be, for example, look, Scandinavian countries, for example, they grew pretty fast, but they had a big banking reform. Look, you know, uh, Finland and, and Sweden, no? and look at Finland, they went through a big banking crisis, they renationalized their banking system for a while. And then, it was true that you know, they had a world outside which was growing fast, so they could take advantage, whereas now we are not in the same situation. But they need a big banking reform, they have four years of hardship. But then they, they went into a new type of growth based on very different type of production they were doing before. And, uh, uh, and they played on knowledge. They played on the higher education, the, on the kind of things I talked about yesterday. Knowledge, R&D, uh, high tech, and that worked very well. And I think that's a good strategy. Alors, it's true that uh, uh, high tech benefits a lot from venture capital, so you want to make sure that venture capital financing is there, equity financing is there, but of course, and the big question is that you want to make sure that the financial regulation you put in place doesn't kill this good form of financing, which is venture capital and business angels and these guys. 
So that's, that's the big question, to make sure that you, you regulate in a way that will not kill the baby with a, you know, solving the problem. But, but I, think the example, I think the example of this country should make us optimistic. That when you, 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 it can be, and it prompted them to go into uh, you know, new kind of growth. You see what I mean? Driven by other types of things. So it was a way for them, and that's my kind of virtual bad times. They had virtual bad times. It, it, it pushed them towards a kind of, and they had a long-lasting growth for the past 15 years, uh, 13 years. They have uh, high growth in Finland and in uh, these countries, and based very much on, the, on, on the innovation driven. So, so, so I think that's what we have to be able to do, and uh, that's why it would be wrong to go into protectionism because that's protectionism is, is not so good for innovation. So we should maybe let other people. We should, uh, we should, uh, we should have. Uh, but we can, we can discuss a bit more. Yes. Yes. You have a question. No. Oh, yes, you, you have. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> so earlier you showed the uh, benefits of counter-cyclical fiscal policy. Yes. Um, but how, um, how do you expect that countries will commit to saving in the good times? That's a big problem. And uh, so we, we try to think about ways to do uh, that. I mean, the kind of... Uh, so, for example, we were thinking that, you know, when we were working on the SAPIR report, we said, could we have some kind of rainy day funds? So rainy day funds are funds... So for the moment, if France decides to save in a good time, it's counted as an expenditure, you see what I mean? If you want to save, in it, the saving is counted as an expenditure, not as a saving, you see what I mean? So uh, you, the, you, you need to have a kind of European agreement, so it's a, way, it's a way to do, you have a kind of common fund, so that when you do this saving in good time to keep for bad times, it's not... It's, it, it's, it's good for you, it's counted in the right way. So, so you need to, okay, to run these rainy day funds, you need some... Uh, you need to have some kind of European arrangement for that. So the, uh, I guess uh, the, this kind of way to... Or you could imagine rights like pollution rights. If you go outside the counter-cyclical too much, you, you pay more. You see, you have to pay like pollution rights. You see, it's, uh, uh, we could imagine also schemes of that type. But uh, there are ways that you could think of to help induce uh, more counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So there's been very a piece of work on that. What are the sources of... Uh, what makes some countries more or less counter-cyclical? Some of them are more institutional, uh, having to do you know, with the uh, corruption in the country or the, uh, uh, some, uh, some kind of a deeper feature. But, but there are things that one can do, I think, to, to help uh, increase the counter-cyclicality. In fact, in the UK, uh, uh, you increase the counter-cyclicality a lot over the years. And I think, uh, uh, I don't know, you, was it... The inflation target, uh, was it the move to inflation target? Was it a kind of, uh, certain kind of move that you've done in monetary policy that make also easier to have counter-cyclical fiscal policy? I, I wonder if you had, uh, to say that, you know, inflation target will be the thing that we, we, we work around and, and that increase the counter-cyclicality of fiscal. So you might have devices also on the monetary side that also help uh, more counter-cyclical fiscal policy. Uh, yeah. Questions? Um, perhaps I could just yeah. put one from the chair, yeah. if you'll permit me. Um, I think there are two views about the effects of the recession on this investment that we need in clean technology, which, as we said, implies lower economic growth for a time. Uh, is it the case that the recession will make it more difficult to take these measures that might require further cutting growth? Or is it the case that there will be spare resources because of the recession 
which are there to be invested in key technologies. Yeah. So, so you asked a very good question. In fact, you see, you have a good effect of recession, which we call cleansing effect of recession. So recession has a good aspect that they force firms to innovate in order to survive, and they also weed out usually uh, firms that refuse to innovate. You see, and, and, and but then it's good if you can relocate if you have a good labor market. That helps, you know, whereby uh, uh, labor and, and also good credit market, whereby capital and labor can be relocated, reallocated from lo uh, losing sectors to winning sectors. So the problem uh, comes when this relocation doesn't operate. So one thing is to say, let's help this relocation. I don't want to help the lame ducks. <coughs> those who refuse to innovate, I should not keep helping them. But I should help reallocation of resources from those firms to more to guys who innovate. So I should say, well, if you innovate, I reward you. But if you don't innovate, I don't reward you. So you have to make it in a way that you, the reward for innovating is bigger, and that if you don't innovate, still uh, you can, uh, the work, the, the labor and, and capital can be relocated to uh, uh, more innovating sectors. So the implication is that we let the car industry sink without praise, and we invest in more Travel by space rockets direct from. No, or you do, or you could no, or you do something else. You could say, you know, you could land, say, I do some landing to the car sector, but then if you don't do certain kind of thing and you, you are in trouble again, then I can force you into Chapter 11. And there is a fantastic thing in the US called Chapter 11, which is called bankruptcy. And here you have the same in the UK, you have administrative receivership. Administrative bankruptcy. Is it administrative receivership? I think something. Uh, administration, which is this procedure of bankruptcy reorganization. So it, it, the firm goes bankrupt, uh, the assets are still running, but you force a reorganization of the firm through, through bankruptcy. And I think bankruptcy has this virtue. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, uh, and then the firm either reorganizes or does not reorganize. And you, but you still give it a chance to reorganize. And I think that those would be the kind of policies. Thank you. Well, I think we have to bring this evening to an end, but we have another wonderful lecture to look forward to tomorrow. Again, at 6.30. I think it's in this hall, but I don't really show it because let, let the default be that the lecture takes place here, because it doesn't really tell. Thank you,